Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today we are speaking with Amanda Blackwood. Amanda is an author, artist, speaker, and survivor. And is she ever a survivor? I had the privilege of being a guest on Amanda's show, and I knew that she was somebody I wanted to be able to share her story on this show for very obvious reasons once you listen to the episode. Amanda is an accomplished artist, author, speaker, podcast host, trauma recovery, mentor, and survivor of human trafficking. Amanda has spoken on multiple stages, international summits, and radio programs, and has published over a dozen books. She launched two podcasts, one that focuses on interviewing other authors of trauma and the other that discusses the long-term consequences of trauma and how to fight back for a better life. A portion of every book sale goes to help fight human trafficking. Amanda lives in Denver, Colorado with her rescue cats and a supportive husband who keeps her sane. He just sounds like an absolute godsend. I want to put that out there. Amanda is a survivor of human trafficking who was not rescued by anyone else. She had to own her own life to get out alive. She shares her story of being trafficked on multiple occasions, how she supported herself in healing and recovery, how she is openly sharing her story on multiple podcast episodes, publishing 13 books since 2017, and her story is so full of hope, possibility, and creating an impact by sharing a vulnerable story. I am beyond honored and grateful that I get to share Amanda's story with you today. Hello, Amanda. How are you today? I'm wonderful. How are you doing, Marsha? I'm good. Thank you. I am thrilled to have you here talking and sharing your story. I was a guest on your podcast, I'm going to guess maybe five months ago, six, I'm not sure. It was a number of months ago. Yeah. It's been a little while. (laughs) Yeah. So another female podcaster. Um, How long have you been podcasting? I started out in 2020. I had a sense of community at the time and I lost that because of all the lockdowns and I was searching for something and it just kind of started from a podcast. And now I have built this entire community of people and it feels great. Oh, amazing. So you were looking for community and decided to do a podcast. Had you been sharing your story already at that point openly? I had some. Mm -hmm. I wasn't quite ready yet to talk about the third incident um, that happened, Mm -hmm. but that did come later on that year. And it happened, I think, partially because I started a podcast and because I started learning how to open up a little bit more. Yeah. I think this is a really powerful piece because so many people, like I'll get pitched, I get people who reach out and they're like, I want to share my story. How can I get out there and do it? I'm like, honestly, 
think of starting your own show because that is one of the best ways to build confidence in your voice and your message is by having your own show as well. Yeah, absolutely. I learned so much about myself that way too. Mm -hmm. So how think of like you who started in 2020 until, you know, you're kind of having these aha moments about yourself. What were some of the things you learned about yourself during that journey of podcasting? Well, it was going hand in hand with a continuing of therapy at the time. So when I started my podcast, I had been in therapy for about a year at that point. Mm-hmm. I had been viciously attacked online and I was trying to figure out how to deal with it. So this therapist was helping me to get through all of this. I was learning to open up, but at the same time, therapy was only one hour. And at the end of that hour, you're cut off. You don't get to talk about it anymore. Right. If you've still got stuff that you're wanting to get out, you got to find a way of being able to get it out. And you have to do it in a healthy way. You can't just go home and start screaming at your roommate, which was my only other option at that point. So I ended up starting this podcast where the first the the entire first season was me basically podcasting either from the confines of my bedroom closet sitting on the floor or sitting in a car in the parking lot of the DMV trying to get inside to register my car. (laughs) And it was hugely helpful because here I am in the situation. Mm -hmm. This is what is stressing me out right now. I need to talk about this right now. And I got all of this out and I started to make these bizarre connections. It's If you know anything about EMDR therapy, you make associations between different events in your life. And I started to notice that this is what was happening when I was sitting in the parking lot of the DMV talking about my frustrations of not being able to go inside the building because of the pandemic and having to wait out here and I'm waiting out here for hours on end, waiting for a text message to come in. I started to correlate that with other parts in my life where I was in this constant waiting or hold pattern. And I started to understand that this stress that I was going through wasn't because I was having to sit in my car because of the pandemic, but rather because it was reminding me of other instances where I felt completely trapped and under the control of someone else. Oh, there's a big, okay. So thank you for sharing that. This is going to tie into your story. If you want to take us back to whatever part speaks to you, what did you walk through that left you feeling that trapped feeling that you're describing? There were so many different things. So it started out probably my earliest memory of abuse was when I was about four. I was molested by my older brother. My father was physically violent. My mother was emotionally and um, uh, very manipulative and abusive. So this was my entire family. I was the baby of the family, absolutely the youngest. I was a scapegoat. And this was the entire environment that I grew up in. We didn't grow up around extended family at all. My father was in the military. We moved around a lot. And the people that I had to depend on the most were the people who were hurting me the most. So I was constantly under this bombardment of abuse of different types from whichever angle I turned. I was constantly under the control of someone else being made to, again, sit in the car of the DMV. I had this absolute control over my life because I was the baby, because I was being manipulated and abused. Mm-hmm. And it was just this horrible thing. I remember one incident when I was about four, my mom took my brother and I into the doctor. She had decided that just like everybody else's kid in the 1980s, we had ADD. My brother was diagnosed. He was seven. He was diagnosed with ADHD and they gave him Ritalin. They told my mother that I was perfectly fine. This is about the same time that the abuse started. I'm not sure which one happened first, but it was in a very close span of time here. 
I immediately began acting out because of the abuse as any four-year-old child typically would. Mm -hmm. So my mother started breaking my brother's Ritalin in half and giving me a half of his pill every day, which was highly illegal. And I was on this medication for about a year before she took me back into the doctor after taking me off of it for a few days purposefully to make sure that her five-year-old was then going through drug withdrawals and pinging off the walls. Again, I wasn't in any control of my environment. I had no control over who was molesting me or hurting me or manipulating me. I was the tool that was being used for manipulation to manipulate these doctors into giving her a prescription for me also. I was on that drug until I was 15 years old and started running away from home and took myself off. And and it is not, correct me if I'm wrong, like you can't just come off a of Ritalin. It definitely has, like it takes time for it to come out of your system. It's not an easy drug to come off of. That's the way it's supposed to work. Right. Apparently, if you just cut yourself off cold turkey, you go through some pretty nasty drug withdrawals, which I didn't know what that was when I was a 15-year-old kid. Why would you know that at 15? You would have, like, <laughs> just, there's no way you should have known that at 15. So this, like that cycle continued until you were 15 and then you left the house at 15? That's when I started running away. Mm -hmm. uh, the police kept on dragging me back home and saying that they saw no signs of abuse. I was in foster care for a little while when I was 17. Uh, I just kind of bounced around. I stayed with friends. I did whatever I could trying to find a better life for myself. I grew up watching the old black and white movies and TV shows and stuff. And I absolutely loved Leave it to Beaver and Mr. Ed. And I saw what functional families in my mind were supposed to be like. And I knew that's not what I had. So I was constantly searching for this. But that's when people really start to pick up, especially when you're 17, 18 years old, they start to pick up on there's something missing in your life. And the predators are really good at picking up on what's missing in your life and using that to manipulate you into getting whatever they want. And that's where I knew we were going to go next. And I wanted to ask that question actually is, is that if you are in a vulnerable state like that of what's missing, it's almost very easy for a predator to like, I don't know how they know. And I mean, obviously I'm never going to understand that part of it, but it's easy for them to pick who they go after because of what you were missing at that point in time. And is that what happened is okay. Yep. That is exactly it. Perfectly summarized. And that's the case with most people who go through things like what I went through. Mm -hmm. And so take us then, is this 17? And then you were taken, you were, is this what happened with your story at this point? So when I was 17 is when I was in foster care, I was bouncing around a lot, just looking for a place to go. And I ran away from home, left the state with three other kids in a two-seater car. <laughs> and I decided I was going to make friends and find a life for myself down in Arizona. So when I turned 18, two days after I turned 18, I dropped out of high school and moved to Arizona. I ended up in a relationship with a man who was more than twice my age because I was looking for love and acceptance and a roof over my head. And without even having a GED at the time, I couldn't really support myself. I was failing miserably at all things in life, mm -hmm. especially relationships. And I just didn't see that. I thought I was being really successful in relationships because I had a boyfriend who wanted to take care of me. And he ended up um, striking a deal with his best friend uh, to take me somewhere else for a period of 52 hours. And uh, basically, I was trafficked. Um, I was raped and molested repeatedly. 
But one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that, yes, this is trafficking. You have to understand what trafficking is, really. It's not really something that you can Google or you can look up on Wikipedia because these are fallible resources. If you look it up on the Department of Homeland Defense, their website says that human trafficking is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain labor or commercial sex acts from another person. There's no mention of transportation. There's no mention of money. And a lot of times people get these things confused. So prostitution does not equal human trafficking and trafficking does not equal prostitution, although there's a huge overlap. And it's the same thing with uh, human smuggling. These are all separate issues that all need to be addressed. Less than one quarter of all victims are under the age of 18. We think of trafficking as being a bunch of kids being snatched up off the streets by total strangers and windowless vans. Kidnapping scenarios make up one to two percent of all victims of human trafficking. Most people who are trafficked are trafficked by people they know and trust and love. People who have, again, that sense of authority over their lives, sitting in the DMV waiting for a text message. Thank you for clarifying that. I think that's actually a really important part of the conversation right now because we are opening up and having so much more conversations about trafficking. And I know that for some parents that can feel like, oh my gosh, like this is just my my kids are going to be, and I'm not minimizing this because I'm saying it does happen, but to understand it's one to 2%. One of the conversations that is coming up a lot is how do we teach young girls about um, social media? How to have, you know, what's a red flag? How to know if something is is that red flag. So it's just interesting to share and understand those stats. Um, I, I'm sorry that you went through that. That is just, that's an unbelievable experience. How long were you in the throes of this confine? Off and on for years. So the first time I was trafficked for 52 hours in a hotel room in Las Vegas, where the hotel staff was paid off to not ask questions. Yeah. Lots of people are part of it. This is, I think this is a really, really important piece, right? There's a lot of different people that are contributing to the problem becoming as big as what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The second time I was trafficked, I was uh, sold by basically my landlords to a young man by the name of Esteban. I was locked up for 23 and a half hours in a small room with no water, no food, no bathroom facilities of any kind. And Again, I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up watching MacGyver and I was able to MacGyver my way out of this room. I love the show and I've written to Richard Dean Anderson telling him that he saved my life and I've never got a response, but I got a trustee knows. <laughs> so you found a way out of this room is what you're saying. I did. I did. Wow. wow. And so you escaped. And I then- got out. And the first person that I saw was actually a female police officer. And I flagged her down and I was trying to tell her what had happened and where I was and this this dangerous guy and he's after me. And she looked at me like I had sprouted a second or even a third head. She looked at me like I was completely nuts. But she saw him do an illegal U-turn when he saw me talking to a police officer and then she went after him and I never followed up. So I had this huge amount of survivor's guilt that I tried to bury deep down in my stomach for so many years And one of the major issues that I had for a long time was this relationship with food. And I think some of that comes from this. Um, I had a problem with either not eating at all or eating way too much. 
Mm-hmm. So I would bounce back and forth between anorexia and binge eating. And it became this really unhealthy habit, but it was my, at the time, coping mechanism, trying to deal with this empty pit in the bottom of my stomach for not going back for the other people that I knew had been there, the other people that might still be confined. Mm -hmm. So I tried to deal with that for a long time. Um, And this that incident actually happened in Florida. So I moved to California because it was as far as I could get away from Florida uh, without needing a passport and without having to face freezing cold temperatures. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I understand that. And I got involved with the world of internet dating. And I got to know a man over a period of seven years. He lived in Scotland. I lived in California. I went to go visit him. He came to visit me. And eventually he asked me to get a fiance visa and move to Scotland to go and be with him. I had finally had a really stable life. I had just uh, secured a job as a director of public safety and security for six properties in LA County. I had my first apartment by myself with no roommates other than my cat. I got a car. It was the first car I'd ever bought by myself without any help. And I'd just gotten $11,000 a year raise. I had gotten raises for all of my employees and I was really stable. And I gave all of this up to be with this man. It took him seven years to get me there. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Oh, my goodness. I was so hoping this is not where it would go, but I had a feeling. So seven days. Wow. So now you're in a different country in, in Scotland and facing a very similar situation again. Right. I was 31 years old. Nobody thinks of trafficking victims of being somebody that's going to be over the age of 18, 19, 20 years old at most, but I was 31. And the oldest person here in the state of Colorado in recent years that was rescued from trafficking was actually in her seventies. Oh, I did hear this story. Wow. Wow. Okay. So how did you find your way out of that situation being like in another part of the world? Well, not only was I in another part of the world, but I had legal services being used against me. The man who did this to me was a police officer. No. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I did not know this part of the story. So some of the guests that he, that's what we called them, guests. Some of the guests that he would come over to the house were other police officers. They were solicitors, what we call uh, lawyers here. They were judges. They were random people who worked in corporations or at the grocery store. They were anybody he wanted them to be. Mm-hmm. I had absolutely no say, as of course, somebody in that situation wouldn't. No. And again, here I was sitting in the parking lot of the DMV waiting for a text message to come in. Somebody else had 100% control over everything that I did, said, ate, felt. And getting out of there because of everything that I had been through. Mm-hmm. I had started to study uh, a little bit of psychology on my own. A lot of people didn't know this about me. I wanted to know why the human brain worked the way it did, why we had these repetitive patterns in our lives. I was studying this stuff quietly, Mm kind of like the nerd kid hiding in the back of the room, reading Greek mythology. That was always me as a kid. And I learned about what we used to call Stockholm syndrome. We now call trauma bonding. Mm -hmm. And I knew that he would know what this was also. With him being a police officer, he's gone through these studies. They have to have, I think, a four-year degree in the UK to be a police officer. He would know all of this stuff. He would know it better than I would. But what he didn't know was that 
when I was in Hollywood living in California, I was on Alias and Will and Grace and I'd done a bunch of stuff. I also studied acting. So I started leaving these little bread creole drums of, I'm going to make him believe that I would do anything for him. So I don't complain. I go along with the program. I act like everything is hunky-dory and fine and smiling and happy all the time. And, oh, I love you so much. And after a couple of months of this, it actually started to kind of kick in in my brain and I started fooling myself. And I knew this is it. I need to change this. I've got to uh, take control of this situation right now, or I am going to fall down in this hole. And I am going to be stuck with this trauma bonding for the rest of my life. And I can't do that to myself. So I sat him down. I told him, I said, you know, I came over here on a fiance visa and we didn't get married on the day that we said that we were going to get married. And if I overstay my visa, if they find out, I could get kicked out of the country and never be allowed back according to UK law. You could also lose your job as a police officer. But if you were to send me back, I could find a friend to stay with for the next six months. And I could return in time for Christmas. And wouldn't it be a wonderful first Christmas together? And within two hours, he brought me a round-trip flight. And I would have landed back in time just for Christmas. And you never went back. No, I did not. My first year back was absolutely horrible, too. Yeah, People think that just because you get away, and you've gotten out of the situation that it all ends, but it doesn't. It didn't end for me for years. I mean, that was 2011. The fight for me didn't end until almost my 10-year anniversary of freedom from that man. Oh, I, thank you for sharing that because I think that is something that people um, don't understand is even if you take the trigger, the trauma, the 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 person away, you're still left trying to find ways to navigate this, to move forward, to how do I do this? And I've just been listening to and going down a lot of rabbit holes and understanding about how our brain works. I'm very much like you. I, it's fascinating to me. And the more I've learned this, it's like, oh, like our body is, our brain is constantly trying to keep us safe. And it literally just files everything away. And as it files things away, that's how we can compartmentalize our trauma so that we are not what well, we feel like we're not feeling it. But what happens is, is that the trigger could be completely unrelated to the actual trauma. I was listening to a book the other day and she shared that, you know, a part of your trauma could be hidden away as red, whatever you, the color red. And then a person crossing the street is wearing a red shirt and you then will match that to your, has not, this person has nothing to do with your story. That's how compartmentalized your brain is when you're dealing with trauma. And so thank you for sharing that piece. And so really over that, you know, you said just, you celebrated your 10 year anniversary of being free. I'm assuming you have experimented with a number of different modalities and things to support yourself. Is this like, what does that look like for you? Well, it was in 2019 that I found out that he had made me famous on a pornography website. Oh no. I'm so um, he had included social media information for me uh, on these posts so that people could find me. And it, it sent me into his tailspin. But if I didn't have that tailspin, it would not have forced me to seek out the help that I so desperately needed at that point. I had been out of there for eight years. He was still attacking me and I needed help in a bad way. 
So I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization out here that immediately paired me up with legal services that went after these pornography websites and told them to start pulling this stuff down uh, and threatened to sue them if they didn't. And every time they pulled one down, that was fantastic. But then two more would go up. And I started really struggling and saying to myself, um, I, I don't know how to survive this. And I don't know if I want to. Mm-hmm. And it got really dark very quickly. I was terrified. I was recognized in a grocery store and asked for my autograph one day. Oh, no. And a lot of people don't realize that the majority of modern pornography is made using victims of human trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't believe that number either when I first heard it. It's something like 85 to 90% of all pornography. It shocked me. It's like, this this can't be right. This this can't be true. And I started researching it more and more and I discovered it. Yeah, it absolutely is. But going through that and discovering this had happened to me, pushed me to also reach out to another organization that paired me up with a therapist. Mm-hmm. So the first therapist that I talked to I promise you, I traumatized this woman so much that she left the industry forever. So they had to find another therapist for me. And when they did, it was somebody who had already worked with other survivors of trafficking. So number one, it's really important to understand who your therapist is and what their experiences are and to make sure that they have the experience necessary to be able to help you through what it is that you need to get through. Absolutely. So I went to her and I told her right out of the gate, number one, do not come at me with prescription medication. And I've had enough of that. Um, but more than that, I don't want a Band-Aid. I want a shovel. Mm. And number two, do not treat me like I am some fragile porcelain doll. If I was going to break, I'd have done it already. Now let's get busy and do the work. That was probably the key moment for me. That was when I said, I'm at rock bottom and I've got nothing left to lose. I have lost my friends. I have lost my family. I have lost jobs over this. I was fired because somebody found out I was a survivor of trafficking. I've got nothing left to lose. I need to get a handle on this. So that's when I learned how to start speaking up. And at first I sounded kind of like a little mouse. I was very quiet, very shy about it all. But that's when I discovered that there was this lion in my lungs that was just aching to get out. I needed to tell my story. And the more I talked about it, the more people circled around me and wanted to rally and support me. The more people wanted to know, how can we fight back? How can we do more about this? And then I realized that a lot of that pornography stuff was stopping. It wasn't going up anymore because people were finding me because he was linking my social media. People were starting to realize that if I'm following this and I'm finding this person, that's who that is. And he became more afraid of me than I ever was of him. What a shift in power. What a shift in personal power. And I think it's actually like because you were a real person, we know it's a real person, but people were seeing like, this is a real person. This is what's happening. And I do think that at the same time, there's been far more increase in conversation, communication about trafficking. It's like definitely something that has come. I mean, I I think at this point, I think I've interviewed three or four minimum people in the last, even last year who are coming forward with stories like this. And so we are having more conversations. So it actually did help. So uh, that was my, one of my questions for you is, you know, how long did it take before you felt almost this surprise that like, wait, I actually am getting support from strangers. Like I actually, there are people who are coming to bat for me. And 
you know, because so many times people are afraid to share their story because of who's in their life at that moment. And I'm always saying that when you share your story, like the people that you're meant to share it with, you haven't met yet. And all of a sudden you start to connect with incredible people everywhere. So what, how long was that time? Because I know it's scary to do it first, but how long oh, yeah. did it take before you, like, we're starting to see that, wait, I'm actually getting some support out of this. It started with one specific person that I will never forget and I will never let go. It was December of 2017. Mm-hmm. She and I were standing in the living room of an 1800s mansion doing a photo shoot. She was a photographer. I was a model at the time. And we just had this moment where we had a very heartfelt conversation. And I didn't get into details. All I did was say, I'm a survivor of this. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm a survivor of this. And we had this connection of understanding we don't have to talk about the nitty gritty nastiness of what we went through, but just understanding that we are standing present in the room with somebody who gets it. That was enough. She is now my best friend. Her name is Colette. I do everything with this woman that I possibly can. I love her to pieces. I have become an adopted member of her family. Her mom, I call mom. Her daughter calls me auntie. This is my family. These are my people. I had searched for this my whole life. People think that we're sisters. We both have red hair. We hang out all the time. She was my maid of honor at my wedding in January of last year. Oh, that is beautiful. I love how obviously divinely you were meant to meet. You you were 100% meant to meet. And like the most incredibly beautiful relationships can come from connecting with somebody else because of your story. And it's not, again, like you said, it's not the nitty gritty pieces. I cannot remember what you said in the beginning before I hit record, but it was so good. I don't know if you remember, but it was just this piece that we think we have to share all the nitty gritty pieces of our story in order to connect with others. And this beautiful connection you have with your closest friend didn't come because you poured everything out in the beginning. You just found common ground that you both had walked through a very difficult situation. Right. And we both recognized that we saw the strength in each other. And that if we ever saw a weakness in each other, we could help to bolster each other up. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. Honestly, it's so beautiful. So your life now, very different than where it was, but you could have just went on and done the healing, but you've taken this story and you've decided to do something more with it. And that's where this podcast really started from. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So that first full season was all about just hanging out in different parking lots or my closet floor and talking or sometimes whining about the things that were going on. Um, I did do two interviews my very first year with the podcast. One was a photographer that is just a phenomenal photographer. I talked to him about how he got his start. And one was a childhood friend who did not know when we were kids about everything that I was going through. And I talked to him about his life and we kind of commiserated and caught up. And it was really cool. And I realized that I enjoyed this interview style, Mm -hmm. but I didn't know how to go about starting to get interviews for my podcast. So my entire second season was me trying to, I got to figure this out. Um, I read my entire autobiography that was published on my 10-year anniversary of Freedom from Human Trafficking, and I went through that and read a chapter every week. During all of that is when I met and got engaged to my husband, 
And then I recorded all the episodes in advance so that they would continue to air while we were on our honeymoon. As soon as that book was completed, I had lined up a few different interviews and stuff to have people on my podcast. And that's when it really took off because I realized that the story of one person surviving trauma is not the story that everybody needs to hear. That's not the story of hope that's going to be reaching the masses. The stories of hope come from all of us who have gone through these fires and have come out the other side and learned how to conquer them. Yeah, you know you're speaking my language exactly right now. Like this is exactly it is it's my core belief. Like when I was in the middle of my darkest years, there was nobody talking about these things. And so I thought it was just me. I thought we were the only ones who were struggling. I thought we were the only ones who were walking through this. And not even close, like not even close. And that's the problem is that when we don't share our stories, we assume we're the only person who's struggling. And all we're doing is feeding shame and keeping ourselves stuck in that situation. So I, like you, love this this platform of podcasting and can't, I'm, I'm blown away at the number of stories and people who connect and reach out. Like I said, there's there's no shortage of of people reaching out with stories. There's just zero shortage. Everybody has a story if we can learn how to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Every single person has a story. So what happens if a person says to you, because I get this question, I'm just curious, well, I don't have as big a trauma story as somebody else, or I don't have as big of a story as she does. So who really wants to hear my story anyways? This is what I call a trauma trophy. You cannot turn a trauma into a trophy because then you're putting it up on a shelf and saying, this one's the winner, winner, chicken dinner. That is not the methodology with what trauma does to your brain. The first steps of trauma is going through the grieving process. So you go through denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. These are exactly the same steps that you go through with grieving this because you have to grieve for the person that you were going to be. That person is no more. You must grieve for them. Trauma changes who you are, regardless of how severe or how competitive you think your trauma might be, it is not a competition. It is not a destination. It changes who you are. It is a brain injury. You build these neurosynapses. You create these new ways to function based on what it is that you've been through. How can you compare that to what anybody else has ever been through? And there's the clip for the show, for sure. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> no, thank you for answering that in such a beautiful way. Because I I mean, I, I do believe like us comparing ourselves to each other is doesn't serve any purpose whatsoever. And, you know, they've done enough research to show you can take the exact same situation and put two people through it. They will actually respond differently neurologically, like how their body responds. It's different. It doesn't mean one is better or worse. It doesn't mean it's just that we all respond differently. And so, you know, we're all walking through something that we can do something good with in this world. And I think it's really important to learn how to continue to find our voice and share it. So as your show, you're in season, like the third year of your podcast now? Um, I'll say, what is today's date? Um, season four starts on September 1st, and I have almost all of season four completely recorded in advance. It's a bit crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. Um, it really is. Yeah, it really is. And so you must 
like when you sit back and look at how much change you have gone through, you know, I mean, here's the beautiful thing. You have to start. You can't, you can't wait to be ready to start, right? You have to start. And so can you look back at that first version of yourself and what would you say to her now? Like, what would you say to her now as a person who is like, done season four and you've recorded all these episodes and you think back to that scared version of yourself four years ago, trying to figure out how am I going to do this? What is it going to look like? What message would you say to her? Stop second guessing your voice. It will come with time and practice. You're never going to get good at it until you get started at it. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Exactly. And you release, let's talk about books now, one book or more than one. Number 13 just came out in June. So 13, <laughs> tell, tell us about uh, how many, okay. How many years have you written 13 books over? This all started in, I think 2017 was my very first book that came out. So an average of two books per year. Okay. So for any of you who are listening right now and you're like, I don't have time to write a book. Wow. <laughs> Like, no, and this is, I think we overcomplicate things too. I do think we overcomplicate it because it's easier to subscribe to the belief that I don't have time for that and it's too big of a project and I can't do it. So how do you write 13 books since 2017? How do you do that? I started out many years ago with a blog Mm -hmm. and I made sure that I dedicated myself to writing a short story, usually something from my own past every single day for 365 days. Building that up as having a bit of a practice and and just a a habit that I was forming, I found on the days that I did not write, I would have nightmares, which is odd. But my imagination would take revenge on me if I didn't use it in some way. So it was a really, it, it was a coping mechanism for me to try to be able to move past some of the traumas and stuff that I had survived many years before. I'd write funny stories and then I'd write a traumatic story. And then I I realized that writing the traumatic stories. I would give it a physical presence, a physical body that was not a part of me, and I could walk away and leave it on the shelf. So many years later, when I decided to start writing books, my very first book was actually a series of blogs that I had written many years before, and I took it down and I reformatted it, built it all into a book, and then I released that book on January 1st of 2017, and I became addicted so rather than being addicted to food as i had been or that you know insane difficult non-existing balance with food i became addicted to seeing my name in print mm-hmm. i wanted to do it again so i did the same thing again and then the next year i did the same thing again and then i compiled all this poetry that i had been writing for years and i released a poetry book and that was late 2018 so by this point it's like i don't know if i can keep this up i only have so many blogs why don't i write something original And I started trying this and just having that practice and making sure that I kept pushing myself every day to do just a little bit more, a little bit more. The first book that I wrote start to finish on the computer without having any idea what I was doing with it was my autobiography. I wrote 350 pages in the month of December, 2020. 350 pages in the month, in one month in December of 2020. In one month while working two full-time jobs and attending therapy. Okay. Wow. It's interesting because I think there's there's really something to the practice as you're sharing about writing a story every day. 
Now, did you have a limit about what, how long that story was, or did you just, it was the practice of writing every day? It was basically the practice of writing every day. So any of them could go from five, six, seven pages in Microsoft Word to, you know, maybe two paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Just There's- making sure I did something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a creative, like you're actually opening up that creative um, space. I also think that I've often said um, that our thoughts in our brain sometimes can be quite toxic, but when you start to put them out onto paper, like it change, you change the words, you're changing the story and the narrative. And so I'm assuming you were experiencing going through quite a healing journey as with all that writing. Oh, absolutely. It was massive. I mean, putting the first few together was very helpful for me. I was getting a lot of that that old stuff resurfaced and pushed out again. But writing the full autobiography, one of the things that happened during the writing of it was while I was sitting in the doctor's office one day, I discovered that my first ex-husband had just died in a head-on collision. He was really abusive to me. Um, We did not have a good relationship at any point in our marriage, including the wedding day. And I wasn't sure how to feel about this death. But having this book that I was currently working on right then and there, and having it with me, something I could write on, gave me the outlet that I needed to start processing the emotions that I was going to be going through. Mm -hmm. All of that, the processing of all of that is in the book. And it shows not just dealing with everything in the past, but dealing with what am I going through right this second? How is this affecting me? How is this affecting my everyday interactions with people? I learned so much about myself and about how I deal with an instant crisis that now I understand better how to circle the wagons, so to speak, when something goes wrong. Yeah, I thank you for explaining that the way that you did, because I think that is just such a a beautiful way of explaining how writing can be another modality to helping you to deal with and release that trauma, right? Like we're, we don't just hold it in our brain, we're literally holding it in our tissues and in our body and you're releasing it out there. And it's interesting because I don't know why this popped in my head when you said this, but like seeing, you got addicted to seeing your name in print. And I almost feel like there was a shift in personal power and that, you know, you were being victimized and like viciously attacked for what your ex was doing at this time with your name and everything in, in, in social media. And now it's like, no, 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 this is like, I'm like, this is me and my power. And I am like, I am going to share this story and I am putting this out there. And there became a real shift in your personal power. And when you start to experience that, it's just like, now it's like, there's no stopping. This is the direction that I know I'm meant to be in. Right. If you're going to make me famous, I'm going to let people know why. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. I will absolutely let people know why. Wow. What a, what a beautiful um, space of personal power. Like, thank you for sharing it that way. So we have 13 books. You have your podcast. Um, I know, I think when I spoke to you last, you were doing a speaking tour. Is that correct? My health kind of got in the way and I've had to kind of dial that back a little bit. Uh, But hopefully I'll be able to kick that off next year. 
Yeah. It's you're in a space of you're giving a lot of yourself. And I think in, you know, sometimes it's how do you know when it's when you have to maybe dial it back a little bit and say, no, I have to listen now because you've got a big vision and a big mission of what you're working towards. But none of that's going to matter if you're not in a space that you can be at that energy. So how do you see those signs in yourself and what do you do to listen to them? One of them showed up as a physical sign. I, uh, in 2019, ended up being diagnosed with chronic idiopathic urticaria, which basically means chronic hives. And I was in remission for a while, for about a year because of medications. Mm -hmm. They came back in May of this year and my body went nuts. I have hives everywhere. So I'm having to go through medical treatments and stuff every two weeks. And with something like that, it's hard to just drop everything and get out of town. Mm-hmm. I have done a couple of speaking engagements anyway, and it was really tough being able to push myself. And I had to you know, say to myself, what are my boundaries? Yep. You know, it's important to have healthy boundaries, not just for the people that are in your life, but for understanding your own limitations and what it is that you're willing to do and what you're willing to say, I can't right now. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. Thank you for sharing that because I think you're doing really big work that requires like big energy, big, you know, you've got to be grounded in big energy. And, and sometimes life will literally slip in and say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. I know you have good intentions, but nope, not going to happen that way. And it's interesting how sometimes it's difficult to slow down when you have that big vision, but you can actually like you can actually really speed up in a sense and reach further by listening and slowing down. Absolutely. Yeah. And having those healthy boundaries is so important for everybody. It is. It really is. So what is next for you now? Like what is, what is the next, you've got your whole next year podcast completely done, which is, it's unbelievable. Um, (laughs) And you know, you've got more books. What's, what's next on the agenda? I always have more books. Um, I have the titles written down and the synopsis basically written out for more than 600 books that I'm hoping to write in my lifetime. And that's just so far. Okay. I have a uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction series that ended a couple of years ago. It's a three book series. I have a historical fiction book that came out last year that I absolutely love. I have many, many more. I have an entire series that I'm planning for historical fiction. I got all of that junk, all of that garbage stuff out of my system, all of the trauma. Now it's time to write my passion and to write what I really enjoy doing. So it's a female detective series, hopefully coming out uh, later on this year will be the first book. And it's based in the 1930s through the 1940s through this entire series. Oh, I love this. I love like I love detective stories and I love, I think those are some of my favorites. So I cannot wait because that'll be something that I will absolutely share. Um, this is just, I, I thank you so much for everything that you've shared and everything that you're doing and the work that you're doing, your story and how you show up in the world is like literally the epitome of what we talk about in the show. It's like, there was that point, right? So if you look back at yourself and I say, own your choices on your life, where was that point for, I've already heard a few of them, but what's the first gut instinct for you? Where was that point where you said, no, I'm, I'm owning this choice and I'm doing it this way. One that you have actually haven't heard yet. In 2018, I was told by a friend of mine that uh, there was an anti-trafficking conference here in Colorado. And I thought, 
really excited. I wasn't making very much money at the time. I couldn't afford a ticket to get in. But this friend of mine said, no, you need to go. Here's your ticket. It's already taken care of. And I sat in the front row because I'm all about, you know, I'm going to help those kidnapped kids and windowless fans. I didn't even understand yet what human trafficking actually looked like. I had no idea what I'd been through had a name. So I sat in that front row. And as I was listening, I started to kind of process the information as it was sinking in. It's like somebody was slapping me upside the head with a sledgehammer repeatedly. And finally, they had a panel of speakers up on the stage. They opened up this panel of speakers to questions. And I raised my hand. I was terrified. Stage fright, severe stage fright. (laughs) And my question was going to be, how long does it take for somebody who's been through this to have a normal life? Because I was still searching for myself. And what came out of my mouth instead was, I'm a survivor and I need help. I did eventually ask the question, and people always want to know what the answer is. And the answer is that it's different for every single person. Just like we trauma, just like we, we process trauma differently, we heal from trauma differently. And what works for one person isn't going to necessarily work for the next person. And you don't have to get up on stage and do what it is that I do to have the kind of life that I live. You don't have to go through this this rock bottom moment to find the strength within yourself to be able to move beyond it so that you can have a healthy relationship and a functioning friendship. Your healing looks different from mine. And our healing looks different from everybody else's. And those people The ones in the panel, those were the ones who helped me get the therapy. They were the ones who helped me to get the legal services. They got me through the hard times. It was so important to build that relationship and to learn in that moment for the first time in my adult life at 38 years old, how to ask for help. How to ask for help and how to allow yourself to receive it. Right. That's that's incredible. I love how divinely sometimes things happen and you end up in the right room at the right point in your life, ready to ask the questions, ready to like reach out, to be a part, participate. And all of a sudden, like the the teachers are there, the people who can provide the most support are there, but you're also ready to receive it. So that's that is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It was a great moment. It's terrifying, but great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I, the very first um, time I went to an event, I think, and I actually reshare this many, many times because it was pivotal, but it was probably 2015 and somebody gifted me a ticket, a thousand dollar ticket to this event. I knew I wanted to go, didn't know why I wanted to go. And I was fortunate enough. I just started sharing my story online. Somebody I didn't know said, I have a free ticket. I love what you're doing. I think you could benefit from being there. And I'm like, okay, it was in Arizona. I'm in Ontario. How am I going to get there? What this look like? Booked a flight the day before. And I made a promise to myself that I will play full out when I'm there. And there was one question that somebody asked and actually a total stranger took the picture behind me. And I still have it to this day because the question's up on the whiteboard, like on the productive uh, screen. And she was behind me. And the question was, um, what is something you wish people knew more about you? And I just sat there and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the question. And I literally put my hand up, right? 500 people in the room and they came over and I said, I wish that people, because at that point, so many people would say, you're so strong, you're so strong. And I would get so 
I feel so ridiculous to say this, but it would just irk the heck out of me when people would say that. It would mean, it doesn't mean that I don't need help. It doesn't mean that I don't, you know, that it was just, it was such a trigger for me. And I think part of it too, was that I was actively working every day on choosing on how to navigate my circumstances. None of it was easy. It was messy as hell, but that was such a triggering question. And that led to a one hour conversation with the host afterwards, which just opened up my eyes to so many ways of, wait, I can share a difficult story. I can do this and not come across as a victim. And she was a spark for my book and everything else that came after it. So it's like, I think sometimes we're in that space, in the room, ready and willing to playful out and ask for help and receive it. And, you know, we don't just fall into the room. There were a lot of steps that happened before that. And I think the same for you, right? Like you were in a space of trying to do the work in healing and change. And then all of a sudden the right opportunity opens up and it changes the path for you. Absolutely. And that I think that that you're so strong comment can be so damaging in so many ways for so many of us. For one thing, we end up telling ourselves, I'll get through this. I've been through worse. Mm-hmm. And that's such a dangerous mindset to be. That mindset nearly ended my life a couple of times in the middle of my trafficking. I've been through worse. I can make it through this too. We got to stop telling ourselves this. And when you, you're taking the moment to tell somebody else, you're so strong. What you're really saying is, oh, I'm not worried about you. You don't need help. You've got this. That is not supportive in any possible way. It isn't. Don't tell somebody they are so strong. Tell them, you've been through a lot. I'd love to help you if you need me. Mm-hmm. I I love that you shared that. And I, I'm so glad to hear that because I thought that was just me. It was driving me crazy to hear people say <laughs> it all the time. Um, I think we've learned enough over the last few years that, you know, we do need to keep an eye out for our strong friends. We do need to, you know, reach out and see, are they okay? And is there anything that we can do to support? And people ask me all the time, so what is it that I can do? Like, I don't, what can I do for somebody? And it's interesting as humans, we feel like we have to, I have to have the solution to be able to help you. And it's not that it's like, can you hold space for somebody without having the answer to fix. Maybe they're not looking for you to fix their problem, but they're asking for space. And so I will actually use those words with close friends of mine. I'm like, do you have a moment to hold space today? I don't need you to fix it. I don't need you to, and I don't actually want to sit and bitch on the, on the phone. I don't want to stay in this energy, but can you hold space so I can shift this? And that has something that's really, has been really powerful. So, but not everybody's going to be your person. Not everybody's going to know what to say and, and that's okay. But I, I thank you for connecting on that piece because that was something I didn't understand why I found it so triggering. I also found that if people, if we continue to tell ourselves that story, that it's easier for them because they're strong, we're also subconsciously saying at the same time that I can never achieve that because I'm not that. And that's not true. That is not true. None of that's true. Right. Absolutely. You don't know how you're going to handle a situation until you're in the middle of it. No, you absolutely don't. You absolutely don't. So, wow. Thank you so much for all of this conversation. Where can people connect and follow you the best? Where's the best places to connect? I am far more active on Facebook than I probably have the right to be. Um, (laughs) I'm all over Facebook and I love it, but it's holding me back from writing books. So definitely Facebook. Uh, They can also reach out to me through my website. I have a contact form and links to all of my social medias. 
And that website is growthfromdarkness.com. Great name. Is that what's the name of your autobiography? My autobiography is called Custom Justice because um, prosecuting somebody for human trafficking across state borders is difficult enough. Prosecuting across international borders is pretty much impossible. I will never have legal justice, but I do have my custom justice. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I'll make sure all the links are in the show notes. And I just, it's been an honor to have this conversation with you. So I'm so grateful that you're here and you're sharing your story in the way that you are, because I know it's going to continue to reach so many people. I have one more question for you. And it is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? The lesson that I need to not listen to what other people say. I was I grew up in a household where I was told I was ugly and stupid my entire life. So I went to college and studied physics and modeled for Harley Davidson when I was in my 20s. I did all of these things to prove other people wrong because I was still listening to other people. But what I've learned on my own since then, since I stopped worrying about what other people think or want, has helped me and benefited me in huge, huge ways in my own personal life. And it's a beautiful thing. I learned that the phrase, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, is a lie. It was coined by Frederick Nietzsche in the 1800s before he died in an insane asylum. We can let that one go. It is not our abuse. It is not our abusers. It is not our traumas that make us stronger. We have the strength within us. We just got to stop picking up those Band-Aids, start grabbing up the shovels. So powerful. Seriously, so powerful. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Marsha. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life.